Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... We've given our lives to serve God. Well, why hasn't he given us a child? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we continue with part two of our interview with Kimberly Henkel and Anne Koshute of Springs in the Desert, where we pick up our discussion of experiences with infertility. Okay, the the other unhelpful reaction I had, which I think you touched on briefly, but sometimes people might say, well, no big deal. You can always just adopt. Yes. Is that a real one that you've heard of? Yeah. I remember that when I was single and I got married later in life, you know, people would ask me, are you married? Are you dating somebody? No. And then they'd sort of look at me and say, well, have you considered a vocation? And you know, oh, yeah. when people say that, it kind of diminishes both the religious life and marriage because it's, you know, it becomes kind of like the flip of a coin. Yeah. Neither one of them is a default that you That's just, right. you know, you just fall backwards into. Yeah. Kimberly. So I guess when people ask the adoption question, for them to say, well, have you considered it? I mean, that is a process for a couple to move into. So what we have found with Springs in the Desert and with all the women and couples who have come and been, become a part of our organization, we have found that there is a real grief. We've mentioned this grief before, but there is a grief that needs to be acknowledged and moved through, you know, process. There's this whole grief that happens, questioning of our identity, questioning of our relationship with God. You know, is God punishing me? Has God forgotten me? anger with God. You're not giving me what I wanted. There's a lot of complexity that really needs to be worked through. So we are trying to help people look to God as their father and restore their sense of identity that number one, first and foremost, we are beloved daughters and sons of the father and that he has a beautiful plan for us. So we're trying to restore that sense of that relationship with God. Then we're trying to help, you know, the couple's turn towards each other and strengthen their marriages. Because so often, you know, if the focus becomes so much on trying to conceive that child, the marriage can really suffer. The couple can start to just see each other in sort of a transactional (laughs) light that they're just like, I need this from you. And that's all I need. And just sort of that love can really disappear So we're trying to really help the couple use this time as an opportunity to go deeper in their their marriage and their bond with one another, since that is like the fundamental calling of their marriage is to, to that unity. And so to use this time to really develop that. And then after the couple has been working through these things and and processing their grief, then they can move on to a place of acceptance that, you know, God has a plan for my life, a plan for our marriage, a plan to give us fruit, hope, and a future. And, And then they can be open to other possibilities of either adopting, fostering, um, being spiritually fruitful. There's so many people, so many ways to be spiritually fruitful. I mean, that's one of the gifts of the couple going through infertility is that radical availability. They are there. They have that availability to go where, uh, you know, a couple with children may not be able to go um, to do things that another couple may not. So it's really important for that couple to learn to be able to discern together you know, what is God calling us to? And I have adopted four children and adoption is amazing and beautiful. And I love it. And I'm a huge proponent, but I would not just go to a couple struggling with infertility and say, 
well, have you thought about adoption? You know, that's something that they need time and space to, to sort of work through. And, you know, it may not be the calling of every couple and that's okay. Yeah. That's a good to be discerned, not the bailout. And I think anything that we talk about with a couple who's experiencing infertility really ultimately needs to be done in relationships. So of course you meet somebody, they ask you, oh, do you have kids? You know, that happens and, you know, you kind of work through that and you, you learn to develop these answers that um, maintain your boundaries, but are, you know, thoughtful kinds of answers. But when you're looking at your family members, your friends, people in the parish, to talk about things like adoption or to suggest other ways of maybe optimizing your fertility or other ways of fruitfulness, that is a discussion that needs to be done in relationship and in friendship, not just, oh, I'm going to come to this person with a solution. I can fix them or I have an answer. When, when it's done in a sincere form of friendship, then it's something that may be more readily received. And we can see that this is a person who doesn't just want to come along and fix me. They want to walk with me. They want to be with me. They care about me, not about what I can or cannot do or achieve. Kimberly, you touched on one thing about the kind of transactional nature when the couple is so focused on conceiving. My sense about alternative reproductive technologies is that it can do harm to those couples along those lines, making it such a transactional process. Is that kind of your experience too? Right. That's that's. That's exactly right, is that when a couple turns to IVF, which the church does not approve. Or surrogacy, um, whatever it is. There's, yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, the artificial reproductive technologies. There's a sense of objectifying the child. There's all sorts of manipulation and objectification that happens to a child in the midst of creating them through the process of IVF where the sperm and the egg come together in the Petri dish. And if that child that is conceived that way has some sort of a genetic problem, they can just be disposed of. They're open to all sorts of manipulation. This is not the way God intended for new life to come about. But you're right that it can also lead to an objectification of the woman and the man. There can be that sense of, you know, I don't really need my husband. I just need his sperm. That can happen even if you're not doing artificial reproductive technologies. It can certainly, that can creep into to the marriage. And that's why it is so important to be in a supportive environment. We have just started offering small groups We offer them for women, but we're also offering small groups virtually for couples. And that has been a wonderful thing that these couples can come together. And it turns out, you know, if you go to any of these meetings, like the couples are just laughing and having fun and enjoying one another. They're really bonding. It's beautiful to see. But it's so wonderful because they're seeing other couples who are struggling in the same way and who are finding life and fruitfulness and joy and finding ways to to really pour into their marriages and to pour into each other, to learn to understand the other one. You know, that is huge. This time spent without children can really be an opportunity to grow closer and to learn more about your spouse and, and what their needs are, what their love language is, how their personality, how they perceive things, you know, how they grew up, what their traditions were, all the different things that make up um, a person and 
and it can help to really enhance and strengthen the marriage. Yeah. And just one disclaimer, we don't want to make it seem like any alternative reproductive technology is wrong. Just those artificial ones that don't respect the unitive and procreative goods of marriage. So like NAPRO can be right for a particular couple because it's restorative of the natural process of procreation rather than replacing it. Right. Restorative. That's a great language. Well, and that's part of the whole thing is that it it can become really confusing, especially for the layperson, but even for pastors, someone coming before them who is in so much pain, is suffering, has this desire, a good desire for a child, um, and is looking to them for some, some advice and some counsel. So it's really important for us, too, that pastors are not only aware of the prevalence of infertility and the real pastoral implications of it, the ways that it can test the faith, test the marriage, and so forth, but also that they would become educated in what some of these different techniques and technologies are that are not approved by the church for good reason, not because the church wants to stamp out your desire or your freedom, but because she wants to protect you. She wants to protect your bodies. She wants to protect your marriage. So a priest doesn't have to become a bioethicist or a moral theologian, but we can certainly help them if there are pastors out there, you know, who have questions, who want to know how can I advise? How can I help a woman or a couple who's coming to me? You know, Springs in the Desert can certainly help. I mean, this is really an area of Kimberly's specialty as a moral theologian herself. So when we know the truth, it really will set us free. Yeah. Okay, last question, uh, which has to do with the truth setting us free. Because sometimes I find myself in arguments with people who don't understand some aspect of the church's teaching on nuptial love. And I'll say something like genuine romantic love necessarily entails being open to uniting to form a new person. So if you're not open to that, it's not really love. And sometimes people will respond by saying, well, what about couples who can't have kids? That doesn't seem fair to them. Do you think that sort of language does have negative implications for couples who experience infertility? No, no, no. Because a couple going through infertility is is open to life. And I think that, you know, we need to continue to use that language and also talk about the giftedness of the child, that we never can earn a child. I mean, to think of that, like a, a new, unrepeatable, eternal soul, you know, we can do nothing to earn that. And, you know, there can be people who get caught up in like over-spiritualizing their infertility where they think if they just say the right prayer or the, the right novena, or of course we say, yes, say, you know, pray, of course, but recognize that The child is always a gift from God and never something that, you know, well, I've done, I've checked all the boxes. I've jumped all the, you know, I've done everything that you wanted. God, where is my child? You know, and I don't want to, that sounds really harsh. I don't want to say like anybody going through infertility is thinking that explicitly. It's like more of an implicit thing. They may not even recognize that they're doing that, that there's this sense that like, I mean, I went through this. I had this sense, you know, my husband and I, we did everything right. We, you know, we, dated, you know, the way that God wanted. And, you know, we did everything. My husband works for the church. We've given our lives to serve God. Well, why hasn't he given us a child? 
And that can really bring about a crisis of faith. But then, you know, it's just really the Lord is just taking us. He wants us to go deeper with him. He wants us to he wants to say, look, I have beautiful gifts for you and just follow me. Look to me. Don't look to my gifts and grow closer to me. And and I will I will give you fruitfulness. I will give you life, you know, but, you know, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Those who are struggling with infertility can really be witnesses, powerful witnesses to the love of Christ for his church and the love of Christ for the world. Powerful witnesses to marriage in that we show how important it is to nurture our marriages, that the spouses themselves in this marriage are good and that there are so many ways that God is calling us in our marriages to be fruitful, to be life-giving, to be hospitable, to be charitable, to give of ourselves. So that's an important witness that we have. And then the other important witness, I think, goes to what Kimberly was just saying about recognizing the giftedness of the child, that we're not owed a child And I think those of us without children, without biological children, can be an example and a witness to couples who do have children to remember that those children are a gift, that they are not the way that you fulfill the dream that you had for your own life, that, you know, they are not these beings that you have that will become these overachievers, that they are not trophies that they are your gift and your task to bring up as good, loving, compassionate individuals who will also go out and serve the Lord, whether it's within a family or as a priest or a religious, or in the many different ways that they might be called to really bring love in the world. And that's so important right now because our world is desperate for love. We have a lot of sort of empty friendships on social media and all of these different ways that we think that we're connected, but we're actually so disconnected from each other. And so those couples that are struggling with infertility, it's hard. I feel for them because I know the experience. I live it myself. And it's difficult, and I don't mean to diminish that, but we are such a powerful witness to fidelity, to God's fidelity and his gifts and his love in the world. And God wants to express his love through us. Yeah. And that love never carries necessity with it. Kids are not the brass ring that's going to make you happy. Well, right. It's the same with marriage. You know, when I was single, I thought, oh, if only I were married, like that was going to solve all my problems. Little (laughs) did I know that new problems would be created. (laughs) So, I mean, it's, you know, it's that whole grass is always greener, but, you know, in our human nature, we compare the good things that other people have, but we compare crosses too. You know, we think, oh, nobody suffers, you know, in the way that I do. And so, Maybe one thing that I am learning, I haven't learned, but am learning through this experience of infertility is that comparison is empty. So when I got married and I had this particular vision for my life of how my husband and I would have lots of children, you know, biological children that would look like us or whatever. And then we we were facing infertility and having to come to terms with the fact that 
we would never be able to have biological children, we began to be open to the idea of adopting. And it seemed really scary. It seemed really terrifying to look at something that, you know, this was not our plan. And we ended up fostering. And that's really doubly terrifying because you may actually not get to keep the child. But I have to say that through the experience of fostering my son, who I did get to adopt, it taught me more about what it means to be a mother than anything else. Because I realized that when I received that child, that this truly was God's child. This was a true gift from God. And he needed a mother. And I was able to be his mother for him for that time that I had him. And I didn't know how long I would get to be his mother. But in that moment, I was his mother. Now we did actually get to adopt him in the end. And we ended up adopting, fostering and adopting more children. But, you know, I tell my children their story all the time. We talk about it all the time. And it's this story of just great hope and great joy in our family. My kids are so excited about the fact that they were adopted. They were so excited about the fact that God chose me to be their mother and my husband to be their father. And they love their story. And I just want to say that, you know, if, if I had had biological children, I would never know the joy of adopting children and getting to become their mother and honestly feeling so connected with them that I couldn't even imagine that I would feel more connected if they had come from my body. You know, I feel like they did come from, and I never knew that I could feel that way about children that I didn't actually give birth to. So it's been all these beautiful gifts and lessons that I've learned on this infertility journey. I wanted to share that because fostering and adopting is absolutely an amazing, beautiful thing. There's a lot of people have a lot of fear about it. And I wanted to say one more thing about motherhood because we haven't mentioned this yet. We talk a lot at Springs in the Desert about what it means to be a mother. And we talk about spiritual motherhood. And there are so many aspects to spiritual motherhood that we don't even we don't even recognize. We don't even think about when a woman is caring and giving love and receiving another. She is activating that maternal gift within her. Every woman is called to be a mother. And so that is one of the things that we really share with the women who come to us is that, you know, God has called you to be a mother. And that is not something that he is taking from you. Like you are a mother. There are so many people in this world who need you to be a mother to them. We've all heard that saying that God is not outdone in generosity. God does not withhold gifts from any of his children. The gifts that we each receive, though, are unique to us. They are often mysterious. We wonder why another person received a gift that we thought should belong to us, a gift that we wanted, but he never withholds gifts from us. I think one of the things that I've learned on my path of infertility is that I need to open myself, open my eyes and open my heart to recognize the good gifts that God is giving to me. I may not have received this one that I wanted, that I expected, but number one, he's given me the gift of my husband, and I'm so grateful for that. And through this community of Springs in the Desert, he continues 
to gift me with beautiful relationships and witnesses that have truly helped me in my own relationship with God and certainly in my marriage as well. Well, thank you both for your witness with Springs in the Desert and on this recording too. This has been a really incredible time talking to you. We'll definitely have links to Springs in the Desert and the article that you both co-wrote for Humanum Review in the episode notes. Is there anything else you want to leave us with? I would just like to say... For those of you who know anybody struggling with infertility, please let them know about Springs in the Desert. We would love to have them join us and be a part of one of our small groups, come to one of our retreats. We have a blog and a podcast. For anybody who can see the need for this and who would like to be involved, we would love your prayers for this ministry. Any skills, talents, gifts you may have that you want to contribute to the work, we would welcome that as we are expanding our mission and trying to get into all of the dioceses in the United States so we can reach more hurting women and couples. And for those of you who are who are struggling with infertility, who are carrying this cross, please know that you are not alone. We want to walk with you that God loves you so very much, and so do we. Well, thank you both, Kimberly and thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having us. Once upon a time, there was a handsome prince named Jeffrey, who helped make Beauty and the Beast, and it was a smash hit, until his evil uncle, Michael Eisner, forced him out of the company and he started DreamWorks and made Shrek 10 years later. And today, we are talking about them both. <laughs> we are back with Kara. Hi, Kara. Hello. And we are celebrating two anniversaries. Believe it or not, it has been 30 years since the animated Beauty and the Beast came out, and it has been 20 years since Shrek came out. So we're going to pit them against each other and see what they have to say about love and relationships. I remember seeing Beauty and the Beast in the theater. (laughs) I definitely, yeah, you can remember things when you're six, but that's wild. (laughs) So yeah, we're not going to summarize either of these movies. We're assuming these movies are so well known, unlike I'm Your Man, which we talked about last time, that you know what Beauty and the Beast is basically about, and you know what Shrek is basically about. And they're similar stories. But Shrek is definitely in conflict because the handsome prince Jeffrey, Jeffrey Katzenberg, worked on Beauty and the Beast. He was an executive at Disney, uh, had a falling out with the bosses over at Disney and started his own company, DreamWorks, which started out with two big animated movies, one of which was The Prince of Egypt, which is phenomenal. And honestly, Kara, for my money, maybe the best mainstream biblical movie I've ever seen. That's high praise. And for the animators who didn't do a good job during the production of Prince of Egypt, they got sent to Shrek, the movie we're talking about. (laughs) Although I got to say, once you pointed that out to me before I was watching the animation on, I was like, there are definitely some parts of Shrek that could have been better. Yeah. Now, it's not a direct comparison. Beauty and the Beast is mostly 2D with some early computer-generated elements, and Shrek is entirely computer-generated. But I think we can both say that If it was just about the quality of the animation, Beauty and the Beast would win in a landslide here. Yeah, definitely. So both of these movies are talking about 
love and relationships, especially through the lens of how important appearance is to you in estimating the value of another person. So early on in the prologue of Beauty and the Beast, the enchantress who curses the beast, puts a spell on the beast, says something to the effect of don't judge by appearances for beauty is found within. And likewise, in Shrek, he's trying to explain to the donkey played by Eddie Murphy constellations and he's donkey just doesn't get it he just thinks well how can you see these shapes and a bunch of stars and shrek says sometimes things are more than they appear and obviously the main three characters in that movie all are more than they appear so both of these movies are trying to hit on the same thematic content but the reason that shrek is not just a retread of beauty and the beast is that it's in opposition <laughs> to <laughs> the whole mood of beauty and the beast as sort of a mainstream fairy tale and also the ending which we'll get into in a little bit. So, Kara, first, do you think it's a kind of a rough sentence for the Enchantress to require the Beast in order to break the spell? By his 21st birthday, not only does he have to love somebody, but he has to earn her love? So, I will give, at the very least, that, you know, the marriage timetables used to be a little different. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know, maybe 21 is, like, less of a stretch than than it used to be. But it's definitely a tall order. I mean, I think that's that's part of what's interesting about, you know, the story of Beauty and the Beast is like, she doesn't just say that, like, you've got to make somebody fall in love with you for who you really are. I mean, she puts like a real physical barrier there. Yeah. And on the one hand, like, I grew up with Beauty and the Beast. I'm like, definitely a child of the 90s. I spent a lot of time with Disney movies. I loved Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin are like the trifecta in my mind. In some ways, I, I find the struggle that Beauty and the Beast is getting at a little bit more genuine than than in Shrek because it deals with the reality of we are visual people and it does matter and people do make first impressions. And I mean, obviously, the story eventually cuts through that and gets to the point where like, that's not what should be most important. Obviously, we've got the character of Gaston, who is attractive, but like a total tool. Uh, <laughs> and we've got, you know, Belle, who is also very attractive, but is like more than what she seems. If I could just pull a quote from Gaston, Belle is the most beautiful girl in town. That makes her the best. And don't I deserve the best? <laughs> I wonder how much of an impact that Beauty and the Beast has like made on a generation of women who <laughs> perhaps really dislike the football jock stereotype. Okay, well, so there was a story that came out a month or two ago from Disney World where they were doing a character meet and greet with the Gaston guy. And a guest at Disney World, a female guest groped Gaston and was escorted out of Disney World, severely missing the point of the movie. <laughs> Right. It was so ironic. I, I saw that going around on the internet. But yeah, kind of pondering the, the morals of the story. I mean, there's also 10 years of the girl power era has sort of, it was hinted at a little bit, I think, in Beauty and the Beast and in some of the Disney movies in the 90s, where you're getting these women who are more interesting. They're not damsels in distress. They have some competence. But at the end of the day, they're all beautiful and, you know, they get their prints. Whereas I think in Shrek, which was, you know, made in 2001, you're getting a, a much more modern day take on strong, independent woman. And her waiting for the prince is actually sort of superfluous. You kind of 
come to understand she didn't need any of these things. She had ideas in her head of what love was supposed to be that were all tossed aside. Yeah. It's more of a maturation of the ideas that I feel like Disney was laying the groundwork for rather than a repudiation of them. To the point of more than what they seem. Like Fiona starts out in the first five minutes as this extremely annoying fairy tale stereotype where she's saying thee and thou and wouldst thou bestow a favor upon me, whatever. And then, you know, the more to her part is like, oh, she, you know, enjoys Shrek's bizarre cuisine and can rub elbows with the blue collar people. And she's actually down to earth. Know some Kung Fu, apparently. Has been in a Matrix training program. (laughs) Let's see. So with Belle, I think it's interesting that so she's, you know, very pretty and an oddball. Usually when it's the moral of a fairy tale, the other people in the village don't understand the moral right away. They're also taught by the main character as the main character learns about whatever the moral is but the villagers do seem to see past appearance in large part not gaston's fawning girls who are all trying to get in a relationship with him but most of the villagers that talk to bell recognize that she's pretty and also that she's very odd she doesn't fit in and so they just sort of dismiss her as silly if the villagers were as superficial as say gaston or Farquaad and Shrek, I think they would they would put her on a pedestal too. And they don't. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because I've seen plenty of stuff on the internet over the years about rewatching Beauty and the Beast as an adult. And a lot of people are like, Belle is kind of a snot. She's sort of like is very dismissive of the villagers. Like, oh, there goes the baker with his tray again. Which rewatching it, like, I do see that attitude. But on the flip side, it's like, girlfriend, get some social skills. Like, literally every time you see people, you're like, hey, by the way, I'm reading another book. (laughs) I don't know. Small chat. How are you doing? A little something. Develop some other skills and, like, maybe be interested in other people and not just the books that you're reading. (laughs) I have a lot of friends who are not going to be happy with this take because they're like, I loved Belle. I was a bookworm. Like, so was I. But I feel sort of like Belle is like if she was Luna Lovegood, but with slightly more social skills is kind of where she's sitting on the spectrum for me. (laughs) (laughs) She is better with her dad, with Crazy Old Maurice. Like she's helping him develop confidence in his ability to invent that weird wood chopping contraption. Like she really cares about his success for his own sake. But yeah, kind of outside of that, less so. She's quirky, which I'm cool with. I actually, I, in some ways, I don't know, there's like some some sort of like undermining of the quirkiness by making her really beautiful and also sort of normal otherwise. It's like, oh, she's just a bookworm. I'm like, eh, I don't know. They could have like leaned into it a little bit more. Yeah, I think they would have nowadays. And also they did in Shrek because you see Fiona like eating mm. spider webs. <laughs> Stuff like that. So. Yeah. Which really calls into the question is like, was her normal state as a human or is her normal state as an ogre? Because she seems very comfortable with ogre life. I think in the, oh gosh, we're going to talk about deep Shrek canon here. Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) I think in the context of just this first movie, you're meant to conclude that the reason she has so much in common with Shrek is because deep down she really is an ogre. But then like later on in the second movie, you find out her parents are human. So that's, it gets more fuzzy there but i think here in this movie her she has an ogre kind of set of tastes and interests that's right i'd forgotten that you find out more in later movies so i was like this makes it seem like she's maybe a human but like she's yeah she's got like all these ogre interests in a way where it's like okay so has it just rubbed off on you because it's been a long time i don't know (laughs) it's definitely played 
to like a ridiculous extent when the villain in Shrek, Lord Farquaad, voiced by John Lithgow, thinks he has anything in common with her because all he wants is what he thinks is like perfect kingdom, perfect princess wife, which is very much modeled after this this caricature of the Disney park mindset. Everything has to be clean and perfect. And that is made basically explicit when Shrek and his sidekick, the donkey, visit Duloc, the kingdom, and they're greeted by uh, an information booth that is unmistakably a ripoff of It's a Small World. I loved the parking lot, too. It's just like, oh, the absolute <laughs> hell of being in a theme park. <laughs> yeah, they, they enter they enter this kingdom through a parking lot. So good. <laughs> and Lord Farquaad's appearance, his face is very similar to Michael Eisner, the former CEO of Disney, who had the falling out with Jeffrey Katzenberg. There are numerous fairy tale references to Peter Pan, Cinderella, Snow White, all over the place. Unmistakable. Robin Hood. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Robin French Hood. French Robin Hood. Who, who, for some reason, is French. Yeah. So the, the takeaway from especially the beginning of this movie is storybook romance is for chumps. It's the 2000s now. Smash Mouth. Bathroom humor. Postmodernism. But then it's the story is exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. Then they do fall in love, right? It's obviously taking pot shots at Disney. But at the same time, it sort of acknowledges the... I'm not sure if I would want to say eternal truths that feels like maybe too heavy for a <laughs> podcast with Catholics. But, you know, like certainly the underlying reality of both movies are more genuine relationships that these people have. Like they actually yeah. are getting to know each other. It's all sort of done in a montage. In Beauty and the Beast, it's like they're reading books by the fire and having snowball fights. And in Shrek, it's like she's catching bugs for him as a, you know, I don't know, spider web treat spider web cotton candy thing yeah. yeah oh yeah there you go but i feel like it's getting at the same thing where it's like they genuinely are getting to know each other and therefore the love is somewhat it's not just plausible it's actually real something that i actually like take issue with people who talk about how terrible sort of disney fairy tale romances are it's like i actually think that they are getting at the idea that these are genuine relationships unlike maybe the little mermaid let's put that one aside even though shrek kind of sets its sights on beauty and the beast i think it really has more of a problem with little mermaid or like snow white they meet and yeah. boom they fall in love yeah like love's true kiss which we talked about back in the uh, again the sentimentality part of men women and the mystery of love <laughs> keeps coming back almost like this is a, a nasty habit that movies have <laughs> Maybe it's like human nature is a thing that's real that is observable and knowable. And the church <laughs> has something to say about it. I don't know. Just... You're far more likely to see a wedding after immediately meeting in one of those older movies. Whereas in Beauty and the Beast, there is a surprise wedding that Gaston tries to throw for Belle. And he's surprised that it doesn't work. But I don't think, I, I didn't even remember the surprise wedding scene. I don't think Beauty and the Beast gets enough credit for that kind of that kind of thing, which is kind of ironic as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's another pointing towards that Disney in many ways is sort of laying the groundwork for this whole girl power direction that they're going in. And I don't know if they're sort of like being visionaries or just sort of if that's like sniffing out the sign of the times of the early 90s. Maybe this was like in the water. I don't know. As a child of the 90s, it is just what I grew up with. <laughs> but Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin especially to me just don't feel that retrograde. 
Yeah, I don't think so either. So Shrek also has some attempt at a coerced marriage because Fiona's under this spell. She's got to marry her, what she thinks is her true love, so that she can be beautiful rather than an ogre at night, even though being an ogre is really her true self. Neither of the, the coerced marriages would be valid in any possible reality because Fiona is entering with insufficient consent of the will because she's doing it to break the spell and with insufficient knowledge of who she's consenting to marry in Farquaad because she doesn't know like what a monster he is. And she also doesn't know that Shrek loves her, which would have affected her decision. And in like manner in Beauty and the Beast, obviously Belle is not going to be entering into the surprise marriage with Gaston. So another thing that's kind of weird about the relationship with Belle and the Beast is the bizarre incentive structure that the Enchantress is set up with the spell. <laughs> because Beast is motivated to try and fall in love with Belle at first because the staff wants him to. All the house furnishings that are the servants of the house are saying, well, first of all, when Belle shows up, they realize it's a girl. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe she <laughs> maybe she can break a spell break the spell and fall in love with the beast because one human female has shown up. Even though like literally the scene before she shows up, she just got done singing about how she wanted adventure in the like the great wide somewhere. So she is not a hopeful suitor when she shows up. But yeah, so this whole spell structure like instrumentalizes love mm. as a means to some other end, which, it, you know, obviously it can't be in the real world. It is sort of the paradox of, and it feels like that's an obvious point. You are incentivized to fall in love, but like you also like genuine love can't be faked. Right. Yeah. And, and the paradoxical nature of that dynamic is like, you see it later on because the beast makes the right choice. He eventually lets Belle go. Well, let me back up. First of all, the beast imprisons Belle's father and then Belle offers to take his place and trade places with her father. And the beast says she has to stay there in the castle forever in order to take her dad's place. And her first response, she actually pauses. She thinks, well, let me at least get a look at the guy first. It might be all right. <laughs> Depends on what he looks like. And then he looks like a beast and the rest of the story can commences from there. You're right. Beauty and the Beast has a very interesting relationship with external beauty, it, it kind of yeah. goes back and forth. It does. <laughs> I'll get to my hot take later. <laughs> the Beast eventually makes the right choice. He lets Belle go and in his mind jeopardizes any chance of falling in love and breaking the spell. So he escapes that incentive structure, but only in spite of it. So he's able to get out of it. But presumably that wouldn't be good news to the rest of the staff who have to stay candlesticks and ottomans forever. Yeah, it's like a real harsh punishment, by the way. Like, it's not just... You individual, I mean, maybe that's part of the point is like your decisions have ramifications, like he is responsible for other people. But <laughs> considering, yeah. I mean, I assume he was, I don't know, 15, 16 when he encounters this enchantress. Yeah. He's a teenage dude. And now you're going to punish everyone because he's a <laughs> tool. <laughs> like, Sorry, Chip, you can't grow up because this kid who's seven years older than you is having some temperamental issues. Exactly. I was like, wow, this is real rough. And importantly, at the end, they do fall in love and Belle is not aware of the spell and the rules of the spell when she falls in love with the beast. So she makes that decision genuinely not tainted by the calculus of do, when do we have to break the spell? Yeah. It's a free gift yeah. at the end. Free gift of self. Good job, Belle. I think Beauty and the Beast, it's not a stereotypical fairy tale, open and shut, 
kind of obliviously earnest, everybody gets what they want kind of story. Whereas I think that's how a lot of people see it. And that's definitely how Shrek wants you to see it in order for its jokes to work. There's this dismissal of chivalric fairy tales when he's, when Shrek is trying to rescue Fiona from the dragon and Fiona is saying, you're supposed to charge in with, you know, sword and suit of armor. Shrek questions this and she says, well, that's what all the other knights did. And you see all the other knights' corpses like lining the, lining the walls. And Shrek says, yeah, right, before they burst into flame. But actually, Fiona's response to that, that's not the point. That's kind of right. Just because death is the outcome doesn't make it wrong. I mean, those guys are idiots. But (laughs) if your goal in entering into a relationship with somebody is self-preservation, it's also not going to work out. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, it does get at the point of the way that love unfolds is not the way that you think it will. I mean, right. I think it's getting very much at this very typical, like, oh, you know, he comes and it's love at first sight and he sweeps me off my feet, which again, I think is not really a fair critique of Beauty and the Beast or, you know, some of the Disney movies, because I do think that, especially in the 90s, there was a far more of an emphasis on the idea of they have an actual reason why they're attracted to the person and not just because they're pretty. At least in Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, there's like a genuine (laughs) underscoring of a real glimpse into the person's character beyond the sentimental attraction. And there's like some turning point that seems to be rooted in the reality of of who the person is and not simply they're good looking or like something that's uh, more superficial. And this this rejection of character, it's unmistakable that this is being criticized in Beauty and the Beast, that Beauty and the Beast really believes an underlying character. Because reading books is a part of Belle's character. She's passionate about it. And at one point, Gaston says, it's not right for a woman to read. I love how much they go <laughs> for so it with painful. Gaston. <laughs> King of the Chads. Let's go. <laughs> He's like, can't you imagine it? And he puts his feet up on the table and just like dripping. Like, dripping Ugh. with mud, yeah. What about this is not appealing to you, Belle? <laughs> All of it. Every part of the thing that you're describing is unappealing. But okay, so here's another intersection with Shrek. So when Fiona is describing her curse that causes her to turn into an ogre at night until she meets her true love and kisses him, I think. She even describes herself as a horrible, ugly beast. She uses the word beast explicitly. And also the spell-breaking scene is very reminiscent, like you were saying before the recording, very reminiscent of the corresponding scene in Beauty and the Beast when the beast spell is broken. I mean, it's like almost shot for shot. Right. Light coming out of the fingers, light coming out of the toes. I think the only thing it didn't do, I feel like the, the money shot for Beauty and the Beast is like, he has his head turned and like the hair is the, or the fur is blowing back that all of a sudden like turns into his blonde mane yeah Yeah. (laughs) and so the big criticism of beauty and the beast here is that fiona's true form is to be an ogre not pretty and they they do say overtly like no you're ugly but that doesn't mean you're not beautiful so her true form is an ogre the beast's true form after they went through all this stuff talking about how appearances and everything the beast still turns back into a handsome prince handsome by some people's standards and so that cheats the premise (laughs) or does it because from what i understand kara some people say the beast's human form maybe isn't that attractive. I'm not into it. It's, I mean, maybe I'm not into French, guys. <laughs> it's bad. I realize, she, you know, she looks deep into his eyes and she's like, I'm seeing it's the same person. But she's also just seeing it's the painting that she saw of, like, the hot dude in the, the West Wing. Well, okay. I think it's interesting because if you're saying he's not actually that attractive, then maybe the movie isn't cheating its premise after all. 
And maybe Bell recognizes that it's him, doesn't find him attractive, and is still in love with him. I'm not sure that's what you're supposed to get out of it. I, <laughs> I get the sense that he's supposed to be attractive. They just fell short. Dang it. <laughs> I'm trying to help you out beating the Beast. Just to cap all of this off with Kara's being very shallow. It is my <laughs> biggest beef with Beauty and the Beast. Episode title, Beauty and the Beef. <laughs> Both of these movies are making good points about maybe more so Shrek, I think, is talking about some sort of personal insecurities, like not living up to sort of external cultural norms in ways that like Beauty and the Beast obviously like doesn't address that at all because everybody ends up being attractive versus there's like a very clear theme in Shrek where both Shrek and Fiona are sort of dealing with these like external pressures yeah, and sort of external expectations around beauty and what other people think of me. I mean, Shrek plays into it by it's like, oh, everybody's scared of me. So I just do things to scare them and make them leave me alone, which is a sort of defense mechanism that, you know, he gets into. And obviously he's when he's about to be vulnerable with Fiona and thinks that she's saying something bad about him, he immediately becomes defensive again. So it's kind of more right. of a commentary about vulnerability and narratives that we have around beauty and our place in the world that Beauty and the Beast is clearly not addressing. Yeah, I think the closest that Beast gets to any sort of character development like that is learning good manners and how to be kind. But it's not that internal like you're describing with Shrek. Yeah. Well, I think the Beast sort of sidesteps the conversation, right? Because that's not really who he is. It's like, oh, I've been cursed with this external form, right. but like people being afraid of me is because I'm cursed, not because there's like something inherently wrong with me. Whereas I think like Fiona as the cursed corollary does sort of internalize this idea. Part of her motivation for wanting to find her true love is breaking the spell in order that she can become beautiful again. It's like very specifically about this externalization. I mean, I guess in some ways the beast like would like to go back to being a human, which is also like an understandable thing, but he genuinely falls in love with Belle. So, you know, it's all good. Right. It depends on what the what the underlying reality is, which is not up to, you know, an individual's whims or desires or their like internal sense of it. It's just you start off with the, the givenness of whether they're a human or an ogre or a beast. And depending on the answer to that, that determines how you reconcile with that fact, whether yeah. you accept that, even if that's deemed defective by either yourself or by the surrounding society. Which actually makes makes Shrek in some ways problematic, not to, you know, problematize something. But it is kind of interesting that if it does come up that she's not really an ogre, she's actually a human. And it's this idea of choosing the form that because like that's the... Thing that the person fell in love with this other part of her that's like her real self. It's sort of less clear about like what reality is and you know what she like what yeah. good is she choosing. Yeah, and that's sort of where some of the postmodernism in Shrek comes in that is not present in Beauty and the Beast, where everything can be recognized as subject to interpretation, which is why we can be ironic about all these silly fairy tale characters we interact with on a daily basis. Or we can reinterpret what we think is just something somebody else wrote in a book, even if it might have some objective reality to it. So yeah, Shrek mm -hmm. gets a little iffy on that side. That's the danger of irony taken to a radical extreme that, okay, well, then you can't be serious about anything. Kind of can be like a middle school way of looking at things, like kind of aloof from mm. real investment in the world, which I don't think Shrek is actually 
recommending because Shrek goes from being aloof from the world to being invested in another person. So I think there's some room for criticizing that kind of postmodern attitude, even in Shrek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels more like it's flirting at the edges of something that it's not quite philosophically adept enough to address. <laughs> no, right, because that wasn't what they were trying to do when they made this Yeah, movie. exactly. <laughs> it's like, kinda, uh, we're dissecting it. <laughs> yeah, they, they kind of wound up there as a result of making a, a funny movie with bathroom jokes and also making fun of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, well, and making her is unclear as to... I think it would have all been much better if she's actually an ogre. Yeah, if they had made that like clear from the outset. Yeah, it's like, oh, she's not trying to like change what she really is. She's accepting yeah. it instead. The nature of the curse is more ambiguous and therefore questionable. <laughs> right. Okay, final verdict. If you had to pick a winner between Beauty and the Beast and Shrek, what do you pick, Kara? So coming into this, I thought I was going to say Shrek for sure, because I find it very enjoyable as an adult. But now that we've talked about it, I'm like, I I sort of feel like I need to give a little more credit to Beauty and the Beast. I, I'm going to stand firm with Shrek. I'm like, I, I personally enjoy the humor. The movie that I would rewatch again more readily at this stage in my life is Shrek. Wow. I'm shocked. Yeah. Dumped on my childhood right there. <laughs> I picked Beauty and the Beast. I think it balances earnestness and irony more than people give it credit for. And Shrek, you have to remember that mindset of that time and place to understand what it's talking about. Or as I think Beauty and the Beast is a little more timeless. I would agree with that. I, I mean, this is all to say. It's a conflicted answer because I still love Beauty and the Beast and the music is better and it's classic. This is definitely like, I think if I'm going to choose a movie to watch with my forthcoming daughter... Probably going to watch Beauty and the Beast first. <laughs> sure. Fewer questions to answer. <laughs> and then she'll she'll get older and she'll find Shrek and start making Shrek memes like all the kids are doing online these days. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, maybe not these days. They've been doing it for a while. Maybe Shrek memes are now out of fashion. I mean, who knows what, what's going to happen? Are memes even still a thing? Well, they, they've mutated <laughs> into like deep fried memes and all sorts of other stuff. These kids... We're probably not alive yet when that movie came out. Yeah, to them, Shrek is not a movie. It's like an ancient source text for internet humor. Yeah, exactly. My own mind just got blown. (laughs) Aside from the pain in my back, uh, I now feel extra old. (laughs) All right, well, I think we can leave it there for our first uh, showdown between movies. Kara, that was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us for Beauty and the Beast versus Shrek. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening. Please share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on iTunes and be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now and God love you.